Hello, and welcome to the Primordial Soup Pot. I'm Rustin Perret, and I'm here with my co-host. I'm Aaron Johnson. Every couple of weeks, Aaron and I get together to talk about something interesting in the wild and wonderful world of ecology, evolution, and natural history. And this week, we've decided to talk about the deep sea, right? Yep. We know more about, what is it, the moon than we do the deep sea? Oh, I I would definitely think so. There's not much to the moon. I wouldn't say that, but, you know, it's there. It's there. It's, it's fun. It's pretty cool. We like it. Yeah. The deep sea, vastly unexplored. So much down there. Pretty much ex- every exploration nowadays finds a new species. This is true. This is very true. Which honestly kind of made the research for this episode a bit difficult because there's a lot of really cool stuff out there in the deep sea but we don't know a lot about it yeah i agree there's a lot of one-off animals it's like this looks so weird it's so cool but everything we know about it is from like three dead specimens so you just can't yeah really dive in yeah exactly which yeah it made the research a bit difficult that being said I think we should definitely do a part two because there are still a lot of really, really crazy animals down there that we know plenty about that are worth talking about in future. So just something to put on the back burner, at least in my opinion. Oh, absolutely. And I believe you are up first today. Oh, I am? Okay, cool. So let me get right into it then. One of the reasons that I think that we could have done a part two is because there's so much other crazy shit down there that i could have talked about there were a bunch of different potential topics that i went through when i was doing this research and the reason for all of this unusual life is that the ecological stressors of the deep sea are pretty unique one of them being that there just isn't a whole lot to eat right yeah not a lot of food down there right photosynthesis is pretty much impossible there's no light so the basis of a lot of ecosystems just isn't there. A lot of life down there relies upon detritus that kind of floats down from the surface, you know, from dead or dying animals or whatever. This stuff, that stuff is actually called marine snow, and it kind of falls through the deep sea. If you've ever seen footage from like a nature documentary, it's pretty cool looking, actually. But it kind of underscores just how barren and desolate the deep sea is for the most part, because imagine a place where with so little food that the only way people can feed themselves is by collecting the stuff that falls off a garbage truck. That's basically the deep sea. Clearly, you've never been to Philadelphia before. (laughs) Well, I have. (laughs) I wouldn't say Philadelphia is quite that bad, but point taken. Anyway, I I don't want to say too much bad about Philadelphia because I don't want to get hurt. People from Philadelphia can be kind of violent. Oh, you've seen what happens after the Eagles win the Super Bowl. Or after they lose the Super Bowl. It's regardless. No matter what happens, Philadelphia is <laughs> getting demolished. Right. Right. Uh. Actually, one of my friends who wrote the intro for this podcast made it onto the news last time. He was uh, hanging outside of a window playing the trombone. He's playing the Philadelphia the uh, fight song for the Eagles after they won the Super Bowl in, what was it, 2018? Wait, that was him? You saw that? Yeah, I saw that news report. Yeah, that was him. Oh, what a guy. What a guy, man. That's amazing. But anyway, back to the deep sea, though. As a result of these really difficult stressors, a lot of them have come up with 
shall we say, inventive ways of attacking and eating prey, just because there's so little of it, and they have to make use of whatever they can find. And one of the main strategies is basically just to prepare to eat or swallow whatever you come across. Mm-hmm. And I do mean whatever that may be. And so there are a lot of species that just have really large or expansive mouths that allow them to do this. And when I was researching all these different species, there was one in particular that really took the cake. And that species is called the black swallower. Well, he, I'm guessing he lives up to the name. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Black swallowers are generally only about six to eight inches long. They're relatively small fish that live in the twilight zone. That's a depth of about 700 to 3,000 feet. So kind of in the middle to low range of the water column in, in the open ocean. Not quite all the way at the bottom, but not at the top either. It's deep enough. Right. Deep enough where there's no light. Organisms rely on bioluminescence or very large eyes to see generally if they bother seeing at all. And like I said, they're relatively small. They have a maximum size of about 10 inches. This is based on our best knowledge. They could grow to larger sizes, but, you know, we haven't found those specimens yet. And I hope we never find any larger specimens than 10 inches because... That puts us on the menu. They're rather they're rather frightening, and you'll understand why by the end of this piece. Trust me. Like I said, they And like I said, they live at relatively deep depths. And some species that live down here are actually able to rise to the surface, usually at night. This is a major migration that takes place every night in some areas of the world. The black swallower is not one of these species, so if you're worried about ever encountering one in the open ocean, chances are pretty low, unless you're in a submersible in the deep sea. And this is an important thing to note because this will become relevant later. Black swallowers themselves do not actually have scales, and they're this kind of distinctive brown-black color, which is how they got their name. Their appearance in and of itself, when you first look at them, isn't that weird except for these like snake-like teeth that they have in their mouth. But upon first look, they don't really look as bizarre as a lot of other deep-sea creatures. A lot of stuff you find in the deep-sea, you look at it and you're immediately like, what the heck is that? Right? It looks so bizarre. Yeah. Yeah, everyone thinks of the anglerfish from Finding Nemo. Right, exactly. Good example. What the hell is that? A black swallower just kind of looks like a relatively normal fish. You know, the face is a little different. That is, until you take a closer look at its mouth. Because their mouths are incredibly large. Like, shockingly so. So Their jaws are hinged within the skull so that they can swing down and outward, enabling the black swallower to engulf something much larger than itself. Again, a very important consideration when your next meal could be something that's a lot larger than you are, and it's the only thing you could possibly eat. So very handy in the deep sea and this actually works pretty well black swallowers are able to ingest prey 10 times as large as they are oh my god that's a lot yeah yeah they're able to swallow something that is twice as long as they are possibly even crazier one specimen that was found near the surface in 2007 was only seven and a half inches long but it had swallowed a mackerel, which was 34 inches long. Did it explode? We'll get to that. <laughs> it, it did. It totally did. Not quite. We'll get to that. <laughs> I'm just going to take a pause right now to let that sink in. A seven and a half inch long fish that swallowed something 
34 inches long. That's roughly the equivalent of me swallowing a 25-foot-long sub in one gulp. That's utterly insane. He's going to be looking like a meatball after that. He's got to have, like, their stomachs have to expand. Exactly. The issue here is that their jaws, as large as they are, don't seem built to swallow something in, like, in one gulp right away. Right? They don't just engulf it all at once. Because, you know, a lot of other fish that are ambush predators, when they open their mouths, it kind of creates this vacuum. That almost sucks in the prey. In other cases, these kinds of ambush predators actually have jaws that will extend to help grab the prey. If you think of like a goblin shark, you know, they have the jaws that kind of extend out of their head. Yeah, they shoot out. It's like a death smooch. Right, exactly. And it's really freaky looking. And I actually thought about doing goblin sharks for this episode. But this isn't the case with a black swallower. Because this doesn't seem to be how black swallower jaws operate. The hypothesis is that these fish actually, when they encounter a, something they want to eat, that is, again, probably larger than they are, they start by swallowing its tail, and then from there they kind of move their jaws up the animal's body until they slowly engulf it. Kind of like a python, right? Yeah. And again, this is where those teeth would come in handy, because... They have this backward curving shape that would help them grip onto the prey and prevent it from escaping. So, once they've got it swallowed or engulfed, it needs to go somewhere. So, as you can probably imagine, black swallowers have one hell of a stomach. And you would be correct. Because this thing stretches out more than a well-worn pair of sweatpants. To the point where the stomach is actually translucent when it is fully extended. I have the urge to take one of these and just inflate them and then play a game of volleyball, I guess. Well, that doesn't not happen. (laughs) And I'll explain later. So, seriously, like, imagine being one of these prey animals, right? You have this little fish that comes up, swallows your tail, and then just starts slowly engulfing you over, you know, however long. My guess is probably several hours. And then and once you just got to deal with it, it's like, ah, oh, right. well, this sucks. Right. There's not much you can do about it. And then once you're finally swallowed by something much smaller than you are, once you're in its stomach, you can actually see the outside world while you're being digested. That's, that's terrible. It's just giving you false hope at that point. Hell of a way to go. I know, right? Then after it's in the stomach, this brings us to a whole nother issue, which is actually digesting what has been swallowed. Because if you put something that much larger than your own body mass into your stomach at once, you have to process all the food. You have to break it down and, you know, into its all of its usable parts. This would seem like a good problem in a place where food is really scarce, but for black swallowers, it can actually be quite dangerous. Because if digestion takes too long, or has some kind of delay or something like that, the prey will actually start to decompose in the stomach. The issue with decomposition in the stomach is that this creates a lot of gas. And the gas is also then trapped in the stomach of the black swallower, which inflates it, kind of like your volleyball game. (laughs) These gases then turn the fish into some kind of, you know, macabre balloon, carrying it up to the surface where it dies from a lack of pressurization. So this seems kind of counterintuitive, but for fish that that live in the deep sea, they're used to being pressurized. Mm Mm-hmm. 
they're evolved to to live in environments that have excessive amount of pressure on their bodies. So when they get pulled up to the surface, the lack of pressurization causes everything to just kind of pop out. To give you like an idea of what this can do to a deep sea fish, you know the blobfish? Like that sad, ugly mess of a yeah, fish? Yeah, exactly. In the deep sea, it's actually a relatively normal looking fish. But once it's brought to the surface, it like explodes and it looks like that disgusting blob. Because it's totally outside of its natural environment, and it's in a, it's not under the same kind of pressure. <laughs> that's why we named it. Oh, that's so sad. It really is. We think of that species as something that is, like, horrible and disgusting when it's just completely out of its natural environment. It's like an octopus grabbing us and saying, ah, oh, they just drowned so easily. Right. Let's call these drowning people. Right. Or even better, like, imagine if you got out of a submarine at the bottom of the ocean right next to a blobfish and got crushed into a tiny little, shri- you know, shriveled up version of yourself. What would the blobfish think of you? I think it, that's how he's supposed to look. Right. I'm just going to call this like a pancake crab. Because <laughs> that's kind of what it looks like at this depth. Anyway, but for, as another example, um, other deep sea species like uh, rockfish on the west coast. They're used to living at depths of several hundred feet, and when they're caught by fishermen, by the time they get to the surface, their eyes bulge out of their heads, because again, they're used to that pressure, and so they have musculoskeletal systems that are used to resisting that pressure, and so once they get to the surface and that pressure isn't there, it all expands and causes the eyes to pop out. That's why catch and release fishing isn't really possible for those kinds of species. Can't just push them back in. Yeah. So yeah, it shouldn't come as a shock to anyone that Fish don't survive these experiences. And the same thing kind of happens to the black swallower, right? Once that gas starts to build up in its stomach and it causes the fish to float, it reaches the surface and it gets depressurized. And that's pretty much it. They die from depressurization. And it becomes a stink bomb. Pretty much, yeah. It's going to be all methane in there. Pretty much. And that's actually where we know most of our information about black swallowers, like you were talking about earlier. It's just these specimens that have bitten off more they can chew, (laughs) had all this gas built up in their stomach, floated to the surface, died, and then been found by, you know, whatever boat. And some really dumb kid decides to poke one with something sharp. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And boy, did they regret that decision. (laughs) Haven't been able to eat fish for weeks. <laughs> Not since that one day in 2007. <laughs> anyway, but think about it. Like, if you're a black swallower and you have this issue and you were somehow able to release this gas, you would probably make it. So, this is a fish which can be killed by an inability to fart. The jokes just write themselves here, don't they? <laughs> For God's like, sake, someone drop a prune down there. I know, right? Out. Like, who knew a lack of farting could be so deadly? Like, we could prevent countless black swallower deaths with, ju- with just a little bit of gas X. That's all you need. Is that what gas X does? Yeah. I thought it stops farting. Nope. Oh, it encourages it. It encourages it. It, let- it lets you, like, release all the, the gas that's built up. Oh, I, I always assumed it was the other way around. I thought you were like nonstop ripping ass. It'd be like a metaphorical cork to the situation. 
Gas X works fast to relieve your symptoms of gas and bloating. The active ingredient is a gas relief agent. It breaks up gas bottle bubbles in your digestive tract. So it makes you fart. Yes. Okay, they should just say that then. I feel like they don't want to, but that's what it does. Okay. Well, now which, we know. Which is what black swallowers should do. Yeah, they it's clearly a problem for them. So, all of this is to say the next time you want to hold in a fart, just think of the black swallower. And maybe, just maybe, let her rip. <laughs> Cuz there could be dire consequences otherwise. <laughs> Uh, just letting one rip in the middle of like an important business conference. Like, guys, you don't understand. I had to do this. <laughs> Otherwise, I could just float away and who knows what happens to me all the way up there. But yeah, that's my piece about black swallowers. More, more, Very cool. More of a little tidbit than anything else. But yeah. when it comes to the deep sea, it's all tidbits. It really is. There's a lot we honestly. don't know. Like, there's probably a whole lot more about, about uh, black swallower biology that is so weird and wonderful that we just don't know about because we've only very rarely seen these species in the in the wild alive again most of what we know is from specimens that have floated to the surface these guys they have to be a spear fisherman's worst nightmare <laughs> now you're going after a school of tuna and you just miss <laughs> your last thoughts are oh no <laughs> and you hit this tiny little fish that just swallowed a tuna <laughs> capsizes the boat after the explosion <laughs> it's a giant fart grenade that's a, i'm surprised we haven't weaponized these i know we kind of have that's what stink bombs are no but like the fish themselves you know uh, these could have been disabling u-boats for all i know <laughs> <laughs> open yeah. up each one dump a cup of chili in and then send it behind the enemy lines it gave it half an hour to prime itself. It could have had a bunch of these swimming around all the, all the, all the troop transports in World War Two. It's a great detection system. It really. Is. Anyone comes nearby, you'll smell it if you don't hear it. Anyway, yeah, that's my piece on the black swallower. All right, really cool, really cool. Yeah, a really interesting and uh, really unique organism that has a that all jokes aside has a really really incredible feeding strategy it's kind of like the python of the deep sea in many ways and how it's able to engulf prey that is much larger than it is um, and in a lot of cases digest it okay so i am also going to be talking about a fish with a very unique strategy of feeding in the deep sea and i get the sense this is one you've heard of before okay i'm gonna be talking about cookie cutter sharks yes I have yeah. heard of these before. Yeah, these guys are fun, but more there's more to them than meets the eye. Some recent studies have been pretty cool. Okay. So I'm going to be going over their biology, special adaptations, and then I'll end with a little bit of history for you. All right, sounds good. Let's hear it. So cookie cutter sharks, of course, are a shark, a small species in the family Dilatiidae. All the sharks in this family tend to be on the smaller side, and the cookie-cutter shark is no exception here. They top out around 15 to 22 inches, or 40 to 55 centimeters. These guys are not man-eaters. And I think you'll find in the deep sea, there's most animals tend to be smaller because you're not getting as much food. There are exceptions, but generally the animals we think of aren't that big. 
for example, the black swallower you just mentioned, even deep sea anglerfish, I think people don't realize how small they are. They only get the size of a football. Yes. They're not very large. Yeah. There are several cookie cutter shark species, all of which are in the genus Isistius, which is named after Isis, the Egyptian goddess of light. I'm not exactly sure why, but I felt like this was worth mentioning. That's a really ironic name. The goddess of light, they give it to this like little 12-inch ugly shark. Right, that spends most of its life in areas where it can't see, right? Yeah, pretty much. So they have a couple other common names. One is cigar shark for their smaller size and brown color. Uh, Steven Springer, who's the scientist who coined the common name cookie cutter shark, actually proposed to... (laughs) He proposed them to be called demon whale biters, but that common name didn't really stick. Why not? (laughs) Cookie cutter just flew. It flowed a lot better. Yeah, but it's not as cool. Demon whale biters. That's like the name of a death metal band. That's awesome. (laughs) So before we get into their namesake, I want to discuss their coloration because this is actually very important. Okay. So. Upon first glance, these guys just seem to be a solid uniform brown in color. A bit lighter on the bottom with a small dark band right under the neck. They're small, like I mentioned, and they have very small dorsal fins in a cylindrical shape. So you can see why some people call them cigar sharks. They're basically shaped like a cigar. A very, very large cigar. Yes, definitely a Churchill. And so this is a deep sea episode, and these guys do live in the deep, but sometimes... They actually undergo daily vertical migrations, so they're always trying to stay in the darker water, so they'll go up at night and down during the day. They live primarily off the coast of warm islands across the Atlantic and Pacific, so places like Hawaii, Australia, kind of those areas, the Galapagos, kind of just around the equator, you'll see them in a band around these coastal shelves. Wow, and they do that vertical migration completely without the assistance of a giant gas bubble in their stomach. They don't even need it. Good for them. They have been recorded traveling as far as about 2.3 miles deep, which we already established this is deep enough. I didn't know if we had to do like absolute bottom, like Mariana Trench sort of thing, but it's deep enough. This would put them right in the midnight zone. Okay. So close enough. It's deep. It's deep enough. Right, if it's called the Midnight Zone, I think I think we can say that's deep enough for this episode. We'll count it. Right. So in the ocean, most fish have what is known as countercurrent shading. Now, Russ, and I know you're familiar with this, but this is essentially that animals are darker on top and lighter on the bottom. In fact, almost every animal has this. Even mammals have this. For It's just a trait that is been embedded so early in the evolutionary history of things yeah like even a lot of dogs yeah dogs have it too so this way any predators from below will see a lighter pattern that would match the sun because that's where the light's coming down and any predators from above would see a darker pattern that matches the deeper water got it well these guys take it to a whole new level because they don't employ counter current i think it's just counter shading actually yeah, it's, I remember it as counter-shading. 
Anyways, these guys take this to a whole new level because they employ counter-illumination. So rather than having a lighter belly, they're actually bioluminescent. Oh, wow. Okay. And now I know why they're named after the Egyptian goddess of light. I didn't put two and two together. They glow. I guess, but... Still not the best name, but right. Like now, I understand it. When you think about how many other bioluminescent species there are in the in the deep, like you could have named any of those after the Egyptian goddess of light. Pretty much everything down there glows to an extent, right? But nope, we we gave it to the cookie cutters. We gave it to the cookie cutters. All right. So this is the same principle as being lighter on the bottom. Potential predators look up and may not notice the fish that matches a slightly lighter color background. But this still works even in the deep sea. You can have enough bits of light and include that with all the other animals that can glow that sometimes fish can see the outlines like a darker silhouette if they're looking up. So you want to have these glowing patches on your body to blend in. I think a really good way to describe it is if you look up at the night sky, let's say there's no lights, you see all the stars out. If there's a giant black kite flying, you would see it because it disrupts all those specks of light. However, if it also had little specks of light under it, you wouldn't see it as well. And that's what these cookie cutter sharks are doing. And yeah, this is actually very common for the deep sea. A lot of fish have that. It's very useful in a deeper ocean environment. And this is why it migrates up and down instead of just staying in the deep. It wants to stay at that perfect light level where it can always blend in. Because if you kind of shift the light just a little bit, that camouflage doesn't work as well. Right, right. So that explains why they undergo these vertical migrations every day. Yeah, yeah, okay. And these photophores, this is what is illuminating, cover essentially the entirety of its ventral side, except that large dark brown band on the bottom, which is why I mentioned some people call the cigar shark. This band stands out because it actually makes the fish conspicuous. Oh, so is it disruptive camouflage? So everything is camouflaged except this little band. So if you're looking up, you would essentially think you see a tiny little fish so, instead of a medium-sized fish. So rather than pretending that it's not there, it just pretends that it's really small? That's exactly what it does. Huh. So you just see a small outline, and it's thought that the shark's large eyes are actually advanced enough they're able to look down and spot any potential hosts coming up and quickly maneuver to the side and attack them. So this is like a reverse anglerfish. The non-glowing region attracts prey rather than the glowing lure. Got it. Got it. Okay. So it's kind of like the eye spots on a butterfly. Where like the predator will attack the eye spots. Right? And that, that will leave the like vital organs of the butterfly intact. Well, I wouldn't say the predator attacks the eye spot. I would say the host attacks the eye spot because cookie cutter sharks are parasites. Oh, okay. Go on. So they are technically faculative ectoparasites. And this is where they get their name 
is the fact that they latch on the larger animals and use their teeth to cut out almost a perfectly circular plug of flesh. This hurts the animal, but it does not kill them, hence why they are parasites. Got it. Makes sense. So, kind of similar to a lamprey, or even a mosquito, I guess, if you think about it. Right, or just They're not any... sucking blood, but they're moving just... a chunk of you. Yeah, like any other blood-sucking organism that, you know, doesn't kill you right away. Like, yeah, you know, ticks, leeches, stockbrokers. <laughs> right those. away, that's the key part. Yeah. So the secret to how they do this is their teeth. Their teeth are extremely sharp, are extremely sharp and are lined up almost perfectly. This allows them to make a quick and smooth cut. If their teeth were jagged, kind of like a lot of other sharks, it just rip and tear too much. Ideally, if you're a parasite, you want to do this quick and not too painful because you don't want to get smacked off. Right. You want to be unnoticed. So not only are their teeth perfectly lined up, but they also shed their teeth in complete sets because of this. So sharks are constantly losing and replacing teeth. Well, since the cookie cutter needs its unique jaws to make these incisions, it can't really risk them being inconsistent. That's why they shed a row at a time rather than just individual teeth. This would be like if you were growing up and you lost all your baby teeth at the exact same second so your adult teeth could start coming in. It'd be really weird to have to start selling child-sized dentures. Yeah, <laughs> you would have to. You'd have like a, man, at least six months or so where you just got nothing in there. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be like age 10, we'd all have to revert back to baby food. <laughs> so they actually have distinct teeth on the top and bottom. The bottom ones are larger and sharper and do most of the cutting. And they're the ones that are really uniform, while the top ones are more so just to grip. So essentially they rotate themselves 180 degrees and the bottom teeth act kind of like a saw blade cutting the flesh. So they latch on. They do the old razzle-dazzle spin around. Little, little corkscrew action. Yeah, a little corkscrew action. And to get the flesh off, they have incredibly thick lips that act like a suction. So they kind of just swoop onto the side. And then they can pump water out of their gills and they kind of just vacuum out a chunk of flesh. So they, they're literally Frenching off a piece of flesh? Just like that. Wow, the world's most dangerous hickey. <laughs> yeah. And I don't think this has actually been documented in person before. But Really? No one's really witnessed this happen. Again, these are deep sea animals. So then, what are, what are the hypotheses about how it feeds based upon? Oh, the marks it leaves behind. Well, right, right, right. But like in terms of how it actually twists itself. Uh, we... That's kind of like... You know, we found dead ones, and we can see its anatomy, and we know, like, how it would work. Also, okay. yeah, so you can kind of look at the structure of it. There's been a lot of, like, uh, they look into the physiology of the jaws. And because the jaws are very distinct, you know, they have a very unique look, we can kind of piece together how it would look. Got it. Got it. Okay. Uh, in fact, the cookie cutter sharks may not even have to do this often. These guys aren't very fast swimmers. They use a lot of energy. They have fairly low metabolisms. 
one study found they could potentially get about 5% of their body weight in a single bite, which is not nearly as much as the black swallower, but that's still a pretty big amount. That's just one bite they can get it. This isn't like an hour spent swallowing it, too. This is just a bite, suck, twist, gone. Yeah, I mean, that is that is impressive. That's like me eating a 10-pound steak. That's just in one go. Just all at once. <laughs> That's nothing to sneeze at. And keep in mind, this is possibly a pretty quick action. This might be like, for a larger animal, this could be like a mosquito. Yeah. You know, you kind of just look back. You got a little plug of flesh missing. But if you're a blue whale, it's kind of just a, hey. Oh, man. It's not as detrimental. And as for what they eat... That is pretty much everything. Have there been any documented cases of them attacking people? There actually have been. Really? Rare, though. Pretty rare. Okay. I mean, that makes sense if they live in the deep sea. So animals found with cookie-cutter shark bites include dolphins, whales, seals, dugongs, larger sharks, all the way up to grape whites, stingrays, and bony fish like tuna and swordfish. All of these animals have been documented with bite marks on them. Wow. This could be so prevalent that there is even an ancient Samoan legend that whenever a tuna would enter a specific bay, they had to offer a small piece of flesh as payment. And this was likely inspired by people catching tuna with all these bite marks on them. These perfect circular cookie cutter shapes. There is uh, some areas where the parasitism on these animals is very severe. One study in New Zealand found that 96% of blue whales that were examined had been bitten by a cookie cutter sharks. And about half of these had severe bites. So uh, I read that in Hawaii, virtually every spinner dolphin can be found with at least one cookie cutter shark bite on them. How well do these dolphins heal from cookie cutter bites? I, the marks will be there, but you know... I mean, things like manatees, yeah. they get driven over by boats and they survive that. That's true. That's true. Actually, um, actually, O.J. Simpson got arrested for doing that. Believe it or not. Did he really? Yeah, he got he got a boating ticket for driving right through a manatee preserve at full speed. <laughs> <laughs> they found the dead one later and he was saying, if the propeller doesn't fit, you must acquit. <laughs> It's the wrong size. <laughs> I use an entirely different model of motor. <laughs> yeah, people really don't bring up that one, do they? No, they don't. So yeah, there are parts of the world where it's more common to find animals with these scars than without them. And cookie cutter sharks are also known to form schools. So it's possible these guys could all kind of attack one larger animal at once. And this might also discourage any potential prey from seeking retaliation. You know, if you're bit by one parasite and, you know, you see him swimming off, it's like, I can get that guy. If you're bit by seven, not as much. But even though these guys are really well adapted to biting chunks of bigger fish, there's some evidence recently that suggests that this may not occur as frequently as we thought. So these guys are facultative parasites, not obligatory. That means they don't need a host to survive. So they can still hunt prey perfectly fine on their own. 
they've been documented eating small squid and invertebrates before. You know, so they can do both. But one study that's a bit more recent found that they prefer to hunt smaller prey rather than parasitizing larger animals. The researchers used eDNA and stable isotopes to determine what the sharks were eating, and found they found that smaller prey make up a much larger portion of their diet than we once thought. Like how large? So I didn't get the exact percentage of it, but the issue with the study is they had a very small sample size, but it's all they could really work with. I think it was only 15 animals, but okay. they found that in all of them, there's evidence of them eating smaller prey rather than feasting on larger animals, biting off chunks. Before, it was thought that like every once in a while, you know, maybe they would eat a small squid if they were desperate. But now it's seeming like that might not be the case. However, the issue is that, you know, this could be something that varies by season. It could vary by age. You know, maybe the young are more parasitic and the older ones hunt more often. There's a lot of variables at play here. Right, right. It could also be like, um, yeah, it, it could also be like a mosquito thing. Like mosquitoes generally only suck blood when they're about to breed, right? Yeah, that is true for mosquitoes. There's a possibility there as well. So so like, it's thought that even though we see so many larger animals with these marks on them, it might just be because there are a lot of cookie cutter sharks. These guys are not endangered by any means, and they live in the ocean. There are a lot of them. You know, it might just be more of like a special treat once a week McDonald's milkshake kind of thing. You know, like you had a rough day of work and you hit up the drive through. I don't think that's a good analogy because it's not like I'm going up to the drive through person and taking a chunk out of their arm. <laughs> then I've been doing it wrong the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> and that explains why you're no longer allowed at any McDonald's in the area. <laughs> Banned that all of them. They got they got your picture up on the door. Have you seen this man? It's just a blurry photo of me biting a dude's finger. <laughs> so it seems our perception of cookie cutter sharks may actually be skewed by all of our sightings of their bite marks. So maybe there's a bias there. That's kind of what this study was coming from. However, we just need more cookie cutter sharks and we're not really getting a lot of them. Okay. So it's like, Anything else in the deep sea, basically. We just need to learn more about them and do more exploration. I mean, it wasn't even... It was fairly recent when we discovered that cookie-cutter sharks were the culprit for these scars. Previously, people attributed it to lampreys, which do leave similar marks, but the lampreys are sucking blood. They're the, scraping and bleeding. The cookie-cutters are physically taking off flesh they're physically removing a chunk of flesh so they do feed differently in fact i believe at one point in the 60s when people were trying to figure it out in a trawl net a guy had caught a cookie cutter shark and a big fish and he was just kind of sticking the two together he's like come on do something <laughs> <laughs> and when the cookie cutter didn't bite onto the fish they concluded eh, it can't be these guys but to be fair, if you were just dragged up about a mile to the top of the ocean in bright daylight and someone was smashing your face into a cheeseburger, you probably wouldn't want to take a bite either. Okay, who is that guy? That's that's, <laughs> mess, that's messed up. 
I can find the exact name. I have to dig a little bit. Like, what What did he have against that fish? He wasn't, like, smashing it into it. He was, like, holding it. He was like, oh, he's not hungry. Okay, but still. I mean, they were, like, physically. I mean, they were, like, lining it up. It was like, well, you know, its head kind of matches the holes. Uh, yeah, but that's still so messed up. <laughs> Science has come a long way since. Clearly. So, it's possible that their diet varies with age and season, like I mentioned before, but ultimately we can't really know for sure what makes up the bulk of their diet. You know, there's a lot of parameters at play and we just need more data, but for certain, we do know that they can function as both predators and parasites. So, they do have a very unique role in the ecosystem where they can feed on basically the top and the bottom of the food chain at the same time. Yeah, that is a hell of an evolutionary strategy. So I want to end my bit with a discussion of how these sharks interact with people. And it's not in a way that you think. Go on. So like I mentioned, there have been a handful of attacks on people. These are extremely rare. This is not something you have to worry about. And in all these situations, no one has died from these. So they have not killed anyone. There's been some reports of survivors of shipwrecks receiving bites on their limbs. Okay. You know, couldn't really attribute it to what it was, but it was likely a cookie cutter shark based on the bite pattern. A shipwreck diver once reported that one swam after him and tried to bite him a couple times. And there had been the occasional marathon swimmer they've gotten bit. I know famously one guy was swimming across a strait in Hawaii, and he did go out in the pretty deep water, and yeah, lo and behold, he got bit by one of them. I think he got bit twice, actually. And also very rare, the occasional beachgoer has gotten bit. But like I said, we really don't go into the areas that they inhabit. This is kind of like the Greenland shark. No one's getting killed by a Greenland shark because no one is swimming in the water in Greenland. No one's going to be doing that. No one is going into the deep ocean with these guys. You're not going to be down there. Right. Plus, if you are in the deep ocean with a cookie cutter shark... The fact that there's a cookie cutter shark there is the least of your concerns. That's the least of your concerns. Yeah, starting with how you're dealing with the pressure and then how you're getting back to the surface without getting the bends. Yeah, you're going to be looking like a blobfish, eyes popping out. Yep. Yep. The whole experience is not ending well for you, and the little pinch of flesh that's missing from your leg is going to be the least of your problems. So despite how they don't really attack humans, there is one thing that they are known to mess with. Submarines. Really? And of all the times they chose to mess with submarines, guess which era they were doing it at their peak? The Cold War? Yep, the Cold War. <laughs> Fantastic. So these attacks happened in the 1970s, and I will say information is very scarce on this. I could not find any primary sources, only secondary. There was one book, but I couldn't really get a hold of it. Wait, you're telling me that information was restricted during the Cold War? Who would have thought? What? <laughs> That's crazy. So these attacks happened in the 1970s, and for a period of time, several submarines, all which cost about $2 billion each, by the way, nuclear submarines, were being forced to return to the base. They were finding that the rubber coating that covered some of the sonar equipment and wires was covered in bite marks. And this caused... From cookie cutters? 
This was the cookie cutters. They did not know what it was at the time, though. Because this was also about the same time that we realized cookie cutter sharks were making the bite marks in all these animals. So what was happening is a lot of this equipment had special oils that were used for sonar. And the cookie cutters were gnawing on this rubber, causing that oil to leak out. And that essentially disabled a lot of the sonar equipment and sometimes the communication as well. So bench, the sub just becomes a sitting duck. They can't see or hear what's going on, so they just have to surface and return. Yeah, that's really dangerous. The first thought was that it was some sort of Russian secret anti-sub weapon thing. But the Russians were going through the exact same situation. Sure they were. <laughs> I'm sure they were. It caused quite a panic at the time, but it was a fairly easy fix. Once they figured out that it was the sharks that were doing it and not the Soviets, all they had to do was cover the sensitive parts in a fiberglass coating. That really fixed everything. Made things a lot worse for the cookie cutters, though. Yeah, they really... Yeah, I'd much rather have a mouthful of, of uh, rubber than a mouthful of fiberglass. <laughs> just personally. I can't see him swimming away, just going, hmm. This well seems a lot chewier than usual. <laughs> I think they might have cooked this one a little bit too much. <laughs> so by the 80s, about 30 nuclear subs had been attacked by these guys and sent back to the dock for repairs. I can't say for certain how expensive these repairs were. However, knowing how big the U.S. military is, I think it's safe to say the cookie cutter sharks cost the taxpayers quite a bit in submarine repairs. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Especially knowing how things work during the things work financially in the government. Takes a lot of money to buy something. They got to get the uh, cookie cutter grade fiberglass coating. Of course, of course. You can't just do regular fiberglass. You got to have a, and you got to have some some people who are specially trained to draw up the contracts to purchase the fiberglass too. Of course, <laughs> of course. That's about it. Cookie cutter sharks really don't cause that many issues anymore. Now that we know, we know how to cover things. Although they've been known to occasionally attack telecommunication cables every now and then. Okay, but yeah, they're that's... really not a problem anymore. And that is the cookie cutter shark, the neat little predator parasite hybrid of the deep sea. That's really cool. We've done a lot of sharks. We have, yeah. If you think about it, because you did Helicoprion and Megalodon, and I did Greenland yep. and cookie cutter. Doesn't well, sound like a lot, but proportionally, that's a technically, lot. Technically, Helicoprion wasn't a shark. It's most closely related to modern-day ratfish, which are close relatives of sharks, but not technically sharks. I'm going to count it. You probably shouldn't, but okay. <laughs> most sharks don't have a vertical line of teeth running directly down the center of their mouth. So. And most sharks also don't have cookie-cutter teeth. Point taken, but still. Anyway. All yeah. right, so also, that's my I bit. I think it's hilarious how how we did an episode on the deep sea and both of us still managed to talk about fish. Like relatively normal looking fish. Yeah, they're they're really not that like cookie cutter shark you just look at and go, eh, it's a kind of a sad small little shark. Yeah, but when you hear about what it's capable of, it becomes a lot more interesting and a lot more threatening. Oh, absolutely. Same goes for the black swallower too. Yeah, stink bombs. 
somewhere yeah. out there there's gonna be a lobster fisherman in maine sees one of those float up just grabs and goes hey frank hot potato think fast <laughs> also <laughs> both of us managed to talk about ways of disabling submarines we did yeah black swallower balloons and cookie cutter sharks world war three we know we're all gearing up for it that's the next step we're weaponizing the deep sea fish exactly they will never see it coming they'll smell it (laughs) they won't see it (laughs) we take out their uh sonar with the cookie cutter sharks and then we send in the black swallowers yes the the fully loaded black swallowers one other bit i read about was also during the cold war one of the submarines was attacked by a giant squid but of an unknown species really was it a colossal squid uh not sure how big it was we only saw the claw marks from the suckers but it didn't match up with any known cephalopods known at the time or i don't think modern but i also don't think this is something really investigated you know it's just kind of one offhand report but like I said, it's a deep sea. There's a lot in it. I think, what, 80% of it we haven't even explored? Yeah, something like that. So who knows what's out there? Yep, yep. All right, so what are you thinking about for next time? Well, we did discuss doing mascots. How are you we feeling did. about that? I could do mascots. I'm open to other ideas. I get ima- I I have a couple others floating around. Um one of which I mentioned at the beginning, Deep Sea Part 2, but we could leave that on the back burner for now. We should put that on the back burner. Um another one I had uh was uh drugs. Drugs? Yeah. Yeah, like talking about different like naturally occurring intoxicants. I that's some that could be doable. Yeah, cuz there's some really interesting stuff around that that I was reading about recently um, and just like how a lot of these chemicals occur and how they impact different species of animals and other plants and so forth. There's some really interesting stuff there as well. Um, another idea I had was, uh, was marshlands. We haven't talked about those a lot yet. Those are both solid ones. Uh, all right. Well, do you really want to do mascots? Yeah, I think we should do that for the next episode. We did say we would. Yeah. I think we'll go with the mascots. Okay, next one will be mascots. All right, sounds good. You want to, With that being decided, you want to take us out? Yep, I'll take us out. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a review and follow on your podcast app of choice. And if you have a suggestion for a future episode, you can contact us at souppodpodcast at twitter.com or email us at theprimordialsouppod at gmail.com. All right. Sounds good. And until next time, I'm Rustin Perret. And I'm Aaron Johnson. See ya. Bye.